Our united role in His beloved church. That's what we're going to cover tonight. Uh, Yes, you have the right hand out, and yes, I did change the title. Uh, The hardest part of these for me is just picking the title. I'm telling you. I spent the first four days picking the title, and then late last night I wrote the message. That's not, that's not what happened. I was going to leave it that way, but Kelly Hone said, uh, it sounds like a Unitarian message if you leave it that way. So I changed it, and I wanted a tongue twister for John this morning as he was doing the announcements too. In all seriousness, the reason I did change the, uh, the title was because I have a tendency to pack a lot in these and sometimes overpack a message, and I want you to walk away with the big idea. And the big idea is saints in service. Saints in service. And our text is going to be Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. But we're going to start in Ephesians. So if you'd open up your Bible to Ephesians with me and follow along, we'll look at Ephesians 1 just to lay some foundation for us. Ephesians chapter 1 starts this way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes into a lengthy section on our spiritual blessings in Christ. And he does this uh, in a way that describes and gives glory to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. This is talking about our, our past being chosen in God the Father. Look at verse 12 with me so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be that same phrase, to the praise of His glory. This is the Son here, our present redemption, if you will. And then look at verse 14, uh, who is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And that's the Spirit there, talking about the Holy Spirit. That's our future inheritance. So I just want you to recognize Early on in Ephesians, the Trinitarian formula and God's glory and His church being revealed to us. And uh, then we move into chapter 2, and as you know, chapter 2 details some strong and common language that we use in terms of describing our salvation. It talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, how we were saved by grace and mercy. We were saved to good works, which He appointed beforehand for us to do. It reminds us of our oneness. It goes on to remind us of our oneness in Christ, who is our cornerstone. God doesn't only save a bunch of people to himself. He calls them his church. He calls them his church, and he wants them to begin practicing as his people in the context of the local church, and that's outlaid in Ephesians 2 and 3. Chapter Chapter 3 details the mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles before closing with a prayer that exalts again the love of Christ. And his power in us. So the mystery is that the Gentiles, they get to be in the church as well. But look with me as Paul closes chapter 3 with this prayer in verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generation forever and ever. Amen. And that's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal as Paul has shown us early on in Ephesians to the praise of his glory. He wants to be glorified. He will be glorified through his church. And the question is, how is that going to happen? What is God's blueprint to make that happen? How is he prescribed to make that happen? I want to suggest to you that in Ephesians 4, he does a great job of outlining that for us, outlining that for us. So if you'd read along with me in Ephesians 4, we'll look at verses 1 through 16. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Father, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, where to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God, and this is what we're going to have the privilege of going through together tonight. I, I, I think it is a distinct privilege that we get to sit in here, rain or shine, Right and learn and look at the Word of God. And we're a servant of God, a servant of His Word this evening. So with all that as background, Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and now as we transition into 4, let's look at this together. Verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And this transition from Paul or for Paul isn't irregular, right? We see this in lots of, of his epistles. He'll start out with a few chapters of just straight theology or doctrine. He'll say, this is the way it is. This is the way it's always been. This is what the Bible tells us. This is who God is, and this is what he's predestined for us. And then he transitions into very practical implications of those things that he's told us. Think of Romans 12, where he transitions. He says, therefore, present your bodies as living sacrifices in view of God's mercies, in view of what he's just gone over. Galatians 5, 1, where he says, Stand firm, therefore. He transitions time and time again into very practical living. That's what he's done tonight. So the rest of the book is built on this foundation of Christ's redeeming work in a believer's life. But I want to be careful, because I think sometimes we can create a false dichotomy, if you will, between knowledge and practice, or between head and heart. I'm sure you'd agree with me that whatever we're going to learn tonight that's practical comes through a theological grid of what Paul's laid out for us here. And so Paul gives us this tremendous summary statement. It says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to what you've been called. He's just spent three chapters explaining our calling, and now he gives us the command to walk in it. How do we walk in it? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain, verse 3, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so part of walking in the calling, as we'll see in these next 16 verses, is maintaining the unity of the Spirit. That's a theme we're going to see running through this, maintaining the unity. And these are some of the attitudes of unity. We need to have these attitudes if we're going to be united people, humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another 
in love. And he exhorts us because of our calling, not to build a unity, but to maintain a unity. Where does this unity come from? Where is it built from? Look at verse 4. This is the basis for unity. There's one body, one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times, Paul says the word one. And in typical, like I mentioned earlier, Trinitarian form in Ephesians, verse four, one spirit, verse five, one son, verse six, one father. So there's great unity and a great premise and a great base for unity is the cohesive whole. Paul establishes that. And then look at verse seven, the gifts that he gives us for the unity. But grace was given to each one to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So you notice he takes the cohesive and collective whole and he makes it into each one. He's saying and acknowledging there's a, there's a collective whole, there's a larger body, but each one of us, each one of us, what? Grace was given. A gift of grace was given. Not salvific grace, but grace to help. And grace is a gift to the body. So unity for a Christian is not based on natural attraction, but on supernatural affection. Let me say that again. Unity for a Christian, for you and I, it's not based on natural attraction because we love naturally the people that are sitting behind us or in front of us, but on supernatural affection. These gifts help build up the body. So this diversity of gifts brings about a unity of the body. Notice what else this means, though. It means that no one can say, I don't have any gifts. I I just don't think I have anything to contribute. I, I really... Uh, I'm not that gifted of a person. Now, whenever we see this in Scripture, we see it this way. Each one. Gifts to each one of the body. Each to a believer. I think of uh, 1 Peter 4.10. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it how? Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So all are ministers. All have gifts in the body. And then Paul stops in almost a parenthetical thought to establish Christ's authority to give the gifts. So we looked at the gifts. Now let's look at the giver. Verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And he quotes Psalm sixty-eight, eighteen, And uh, as he's quoting that, the victors uh, from war, as you know, would receive the spoils of war, and they would give those gifts to men. And that's the picture we have here. In this case, Christ gives the gifts to his people from the spoils of his victory. And Paul explains it further, verse 9, he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he, but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And so Paul is making sure we know, so we know that Christ has the authority to bestow these gifts given. So the incarnation, the ascension, his conquering of sin and death means that he's got the authority to give these gifts. So in summary of 1 through 10, we are a calling, a holy calling to walk in or to live in, and it's done by these attitudes of unity. And we have the basis for unity in God and the oneness of God in his word. And then we have the diversity of gifts. And we looked at the giver of the gifts. I know I moved through those first 10 verses fairly quickly, but I want to get into verse 11 through 16 where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. So if you can imagine verses 11 through 16 building on what Paul has established thus far in Ephesians. And you know, 11 through 16, I really believe is is just a 
precious part of Scripture. I don't know that there's any songs written about this portion. It's not a particularly well-known portion of Scripture, but I believe it displays the beauty and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God in such an incredible way, such a beautiful way. So let's look at it. This is God's plan for equipping, maturing, teaching, loving, and functioning in his church. So two things, if you're following your outline there, you'll see we're going to look at the roles in the church, and secondly, we're going to look at the goals of the church. Okay, so the roles in the church and the goals of the church. Verse 11, the roles in the church, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So these apostles laid the foundation. They taught and wrote God's word. They authenticated the word through signs and miracles. These were people who had seen and been with Christ. In fact, if you're in Ephesians 4 in your Bible, look back at Ephesians 2, verse 20. Ephesians 2, 20. Just a two chapters back. He's talking about the household of God here, and he says, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So you have this picture of the temple of God, the household of God, and what's its cornerstone? Of course, Christ Jesus, and then its foundation are the apostles and the prophets. And so this word apostles used in a general sense sometimes in the New Testament, people like Barnabas or Silas or Timothy, but most of the time when we see this, it's talking about the foundational apostles, the apostles of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this office, this office by definition has ceased then. And so is the prophets. Not talking here about the people who are in the body with the gift of prof- prophecy or proclaiming the word, but the office of prophets. Sometimes giving inspired work, sometimes expounding already inspired work. These prophets in the New Testament would explain the word of God. Just as Old Testament's, Old, Old uh, Testament prophets passed off the scenes, so have New Testament prophets passed off the scenes. Then we look at evangelists. And I believe that the evangelist is a role that's functioning in the church today. And their role, it's very simple, but it's not easy. It's this, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Proclaim the good news. And Timothy was a great example of a local evangelist. Paul said to him, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. And then we have shepherds and teachers. Shepherds and teachers. Some of you have it translated in your versions, pastors. And the word can mean that, but almost everywhere else in Scripture we see it this, translated this way, shepherds. Shepherds, and it's mostly used of Jesus. So these are, if Jesus is the chief shepherd, okay, these are the under-shepherds, if you will. They're the shepherds and the teachers. This is poignant imagery. I love the imagery of shepherd New Testament. Most of you have been around Montana long enough to be familiar with sheep or livestock or animals. And I automatically think of my father, who's a, I grew up on a cattle ranch, and he's a tremendous rancher. He's a tremendous cowboy. And uh, most of his land was established with sheep, as you may know, but then moved to cattle. And what's dad's responsibility? It's to watch them, to warn them, to guide them, to care for them, to feed and to nourish them. Those calves, even if it's 40 below, dad's got to be out there dragging them in, bringing them in, protecting them from wolves, protecting them from vicious animals, protecting them from the elements, the cold, the weather. So whether it's 40 below or 100 above, the shepherd is out there, he's working, he's sweating. And it's best to see these, this is best, in, best to see these, not as two offices, shepherd and teacher, but as a one office, a shepherd teacher, okay? So each church should have evangelists and shepherd teachers. Why? Verse 12 tells us to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for the building up of the body of Christ. So the role of the evangelist and pastor, again, is simple, but it's not easy. It's to equip. It's to equip. What does it mean to equip? Well, the word has the idea of repairing or mending or returning something to usefulness. And it was used oftentimes in the language in these days in, uh, in reference to medicine, to set a broken bone or to, to mend a wound. I don't know if many of you have been around broken bones or dislocated joints, uh, but I'm reminded of my time in football, and it seemed like every day almost somebody was coming up with their elbow swinging around because it had been dislocated or a bone had been fractured, and all the time everyone was, you know, it happened to everyone, trainer, trainer, and the trainer would run out there, and his responsibility was to go up and to put that joint back into place. And that's the picture here, is restoring that shoulder, that elbow, or that hip, or whatever it is, to usefulness. He's mending and equipping. And that's how our lives can get, isn't it? If we're to be honest, our lives can get pretty broken, disjointed, messed up, knocked out. And sometimes we yell, trainer. And the job of the shepherd and teacher and the job of the evangelist is to equip, to mend, to repair, to usefulness. So the question is, how does this happen? How are people equipped? Well, we don't have to look far. Look back at verse 11. The shepherd's job is to be a teacher, a teacher. So you've got to be under teaching if you're going to be equipped. It happens with the word, with the word and with prayer, with the fellowship of the saints. This facet of a pastor's job or a shepherd's job cannot be more clear. It's to teach the word. And this is how the saints are equipped. They're built up. They're restored to usefulness is by teaching. And so we find that these positions, if you will, these apostles, these prophets, these evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, they're not an end but a means, a means to an end. I love how John Stott puts this on his, in his uh, commentary on Ephesians. Let me read it to you. The New Testament concept of the pastor is not a person who jealously guards all ministry in his own hands and successively squashes all lay initiatives, but one who helps and encourages all of God's people to discover, develop, and exercise their gifts. So his teaching and training are directed to this end to enable the people of God to be a servant people, ministering actively. Thus, instead of monopolizing ministry, he's actively involved in multiplying ministry. So I would like to have a, I'd like to have a shot at each instrument up here tonight, right? But I couldn't play them all at once. I couldn't make the kind of music. In fact, I couldn't play any of these instruments. I'm not a musician, but imagine for a minute I was. Imagine it's orchestra. The, the pastor, the shepherd's job isn't to play all these individual instruments. It's to conduct, if you will, the instruments as Jeremy has done so well. Okay, so it's not to play them all. It's not to monopolize, but it is to conduct. And God's already written the score. And so all he does is give the music. It's easier to do things alone, isn't it? It's just, I mean, if I was to be honest, it's just easier to do things by myself sometimes. But that's not the way that God has laid this beautiful plan out. It's to equip who? The saints, the holy ones, all true believers in the body of Christ. And the, equip them to do what? The work of the ministry. That is to build up the body. Okay, Acts 2.32 And now I commend you to God and to the work of His grace. The word of His grace. Excuse me, talking about the Bible here. I commend you to the word of his grace. And what is that word of his grace able to do, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are being sanctified. So it's building the body up in knowledge and in holiness or in piety. Okay, does that make sense to you? 
So brothers and sisters, um, if when you think of the work of the ministry, if when you think of ministry and you think primarily of pastors, this might be a good time for us to have a paradigm shift, right? Who does the work of the ministry? It's the saints. It's all of us doing the work of the ministry in the body. And I think of, as I was thinking about this and studying this, I just think of, praise God for good examples who have just exemplified this formally. I thought immediately of the counseling ministry. I think out of the counseling ministry, they, they go and they, they mend and they repair and they go in with the Word of God. And there's a, there's a setting of the joints and repairing of broken bones. And there's an equipping. Why? So they can do all the ministry? No. So the saints can be a part of the counseling and the building up of the body and the doing the ministry. Such a great example for me. I think of the music team, Pastor Jeremy tonight, and all of them using their very gifts. And I appreciate that so much by the way, because I have zero musical talents. My wife is a great musician, but thank you for using your gifts. I think of the youth group or the missions team or the adult ministries and all these great examples of saints doing the work of the ministry. Praise God for you men and women doing work in the ministry. But if you follow the, the line of thinking or if you follow things, it's easy here. Pastors, what do they do? They teach the Word, which then equips the saints resulting in the saints doing the work of the ministry, leading to the body being built up. Are you following? Are you tracking with me? Resulting in, I would argue, eventually, God being glorified to the praise of His glory and Him being pleased. Why? Why? Well, because Christ loves His church. He loves His church. He loves His bride. And if you've been married or if you've seen a healthy marriage, this is obvious. You want to give good gifts to your bride, to your church, because you love her, you care about her. And listen, Christ loves, be assured, Christ loves his church, of which he is the head. Amen? So we've gone from roles in the church. Now we're going to look at the goals of the church. Okay, goals of the church. Verse 16. How long do we do this? Well, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this unity of the faith, and I love how Skevington Woods simply puts this in his commentary. He says, individualism is a mark of immaturity. And I agree. I think individualism, and listen, I believe we're, we're in a culture and a time where people are more and more individualistic. They're more and more autonomous. I think that's a sign of immaturity. In a 2012, a group of 20 researchers did an analysis of words and phrases in more than 750,000 books. Okay, published in the last 50 years. And one of the most significant and controversial findings was the increase of the pronoun I over and against the word we. They found that since 1960, there's been an increasing uh, use of words focused on the individual as opposed to a group or a community. One of the researchers from San Diego State, Gene Twinge, said these trends reflect a sea of change in American culture more towards individualism. And if you haven't noticed this, You have to look around far. People are more and more autonomous. They have to depend less and less on each other. What does the church do in this? That's a unique example of light and community and the saints serving and helping one another. Paul says to mature manhood. Then I would argue if if individualism is a mark of immaturity, unity is a sign of maturity. The unity of the faith. You see, teaching doesn't divide. It unites. And teaching equips to live godly lives and to grow into the fullness of Christ. It's so easy to sit on the sidelines, isn't it? It's just so easy to sit on the sidelines of a game and be critical. 
come on, ref, or catch the ball, or run that route. I hear that all the time. And I've even said those things. so easy to be critical watching. But listen, if you get in the game, if you're in the game, and you're linking arm in arm with other saints and doing the work of the ministry, that's a beautiful thing. You have to depend on one another, don't you? You have to depend on one another's spiritual gifts to carry out the work of the ministry. And when I see someone lean into a ministry, when I see someone get into the game and thrive, instead of a critical spirit, you know what develops? A grateful spirit. That's so neat to see. I praise God for that. And so Paul tells us we are to grow into a mature manhood, a mature manhood. You see, it's okay to be a baby when you're a baby, isn't it? I don't tell our daughter, Harmony, who's four months old now, come on, Harmony, get out of bed, clean up your room. I would never do that. Pick up your... Pick up your toys. She doesn't even know how to play with a toy yet. I'm not going to have her pick them up, right? So it's okay to be a baby when you're a baby. But by God's grace, when Harmony turns 16 and we go out to old Chicago to grab some lunch together, if she orders a warm bottle of milk, it's not going to be okay, is it? No, because it's okay to be a baby when you're a baby. But eventually, we're going to have to give her some meat. Eventually, we're going to have to give her some meat. But Christians, if you and I and our brothers and sisters, if we're not trusting God, if we're not disciplining our lives, if we're not being equipped by teaching, we can easily be and act like children. And I speak from experience here. But we don't want to be like children. Why? Why, verse 14, so we may no longer be like children, Paul says. Why? Because they're tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, just like a ship. The imagery is good here. I think about a time when I was about 8 or 10 years old, I went up to the Northwest Territories, way up north, north of Canada, and I was fishing with a bunch of old cowboys, tough guys. My dad took me up there, and we were in these little, just little puddle jumpers, just aluminum boats that you could pick up with one guy. And we're out on this big icy lake, and these storms would roll in. And as an eight-year-old, I would, I would grab the sides of this boat, and these waves are coming. And they're tossing this a little aluminum. It felt like we were in a piece of tinfoil. And you'd fire up the motor, and you'd bounce over the waves, and you'd head for an island. And you'd get under a big tree, and you'd build a fire. Why? Because you're so easily just tossed around, just thrown around. One wave is going to throw you this way, and you'd hop over the next wave. Listen, that's the picture here. And children are tossed around by waves. Human cunningness, the word is cubos or cube. Sounds like cube, doesn't it? It's where we get our word cube or dice. Speaking of the game of dice and the craftiness and the sleight of hand that often occurs in games like dice. There's cunningness, there's trickery, there's craftiness. And listen, if you're not ready, if you're not equipped with the word of God, you can be deceived. You can be deceived. It might also be referring to the roll of the hand that's in dice, establishing our doctrines by a roll of the hand like this. This is how I used to read my Bible as a new Christian. I'd just flip to a page and start reading. And listen, when you, be, when you base and when you find and when you establish your doctrines like that with a roll of the hand, they're easily undone in the same way. So easy to be undone. Okay. This is often what happens. I speak from experience here too. This is often what happens when people jump from one church to another, one ministry to another, or thumbing through fancy covers at the Christian bookstore or Googling different doctrines to see what they come up with. So the illustration is obvious. Boys and girls are tossed around and men and women in the face stand firm. And I know as I look out here, 
that you desire to be a man and woman, to, to mature to, to the full stature of Christ in manhood. So instead of being tossed around like I was in Northwest Territories in that little thing of aluminum foil, verse 15 says, rather speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. We're growing, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. This is hard, isn't it? I mean, if we were just to be honest, this isn't easy. But Paul asks us to do it. He commands us to do it. It'd be easy to translate this truth in it. Living a life full of truth and compassion. And it smells of the attitude, I think, smells of the attitude of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12. If you want to do that as homework, look that up later. I'll just read a couple verses to you here. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. Listen to how Paul says this, please. But we were gentle among you. He's speaking to the people of Thessalonica. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, our own lives, because you'd become very dear to us. I think, Tanner, next time you feel like barking at someone, go home and study that passage. Are you caring for people like a, like a mother taking care of her own children, nursing her own children? We are to speak the truth in love. And this takes a mature believer. This takes growing up into the stature of Christ. So easy either to have soppy sentiment on one side or cold and abrasive words on the other side, isn't it? I want to talk just briefly, if I can. I want to bring this home to you a little bit. The role of the internet in this. Because so many of you, and so, so often myself, we do so much of our talking with our hands these days, don't we? Or with our thumbs. And it just grieves my heart as I look at how Christians talk to each other sometimes using their hands. They're not speaking the truth in love. It's so easy to hide behind a keyboard or a cell phone, but we as Christians, as brothers and sisters, we must speak the truth in love. Scripture gives a wonderful alternative to the way we have a tendency to do either soppy sentiment, as I said, or cold and abrasive words. And it says, grow up into the picture of Christ. He is the example. We look at how he talked and walked and lived with people and he spoke the truth bluntly and honestly, but he spoke it in love. And Paul makes much of Christ, doesn't he? He's the head. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I think God is such an illustrator, isn't he? His Spirit inspires this text through Paul. I know, I'm sure Paul had been hanging out with Dr. Luke a lot, so he knew a little bit about the human body, but this is one of Paul's most vivid, and it's his favorite analogy, quite frankly. We don't see any sign or any hint of it in the New Testament, but over and over again. If you want to look at a good example, look at 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 7. He uses this illustration seven times in the book of Ephesians alone and five in Colossians to talk about the body and what a good picture. What a good picture this is. Paul was just a tent maker, but he knew that the the church of Christ is supposed to look like a body. It's best, even though this makes sense in a global context as well, to think about this in our local context tonight. Our body, our group here tonight even. What happens, let me ask you a question, what happens when a body is dysfunctional? 
whether it's autoimmune disease or stroke or muscle failure, whatever it is, we all know people or even ourselves have experienced pain and difficulty and our body doesn't always function properly. I think of an example in my own life when um, my bicep was severed and it slumped down, the long head tore, and it just lay there. And uh, I was going to get it surgically repaired, but then I learned that you can get 95% of your strength back in your arm. How? Just in your other muscles, your deltoid, your tricep, your subscap, all those muscles, they pitch in and they do the work. They combine and they make up for that work. I think of some of the folks here tonight, we probably have an orthopedic surgeon. I know we have some pre-med students and some nurses in here tonight. You see this imagery, but you don't have to be in the medical profession to see this imagery. But what happens? What's the trouble with the other muscles taking over and, and, and filling in? What's the difficulty there? They have to work overtime, don't they? So that arm or that leg or whatever it is, in your body or someone's body, it can never be fully what it was. It would never be as strong as it would be without that muscle, without that part. And listen, it's no different in our body. It's no different in our body. So listen, no gift. None of you is insignificant. You matter in this body. You matter in the kingdom. These lists of gifts in Scripture, they're descriptive but not exhaustive. And so as you look through them, I challenge you to go home and study, find out and ask other people, where do you see me filling in? Where do you see my gifting? How can I serve and help in this body? Some of you might be tending, uh, you might have a tendency to say, Tanner, I'm just an appendix. I'm not really any good for anything. I'm just, I'm just kind of hanging out. We used to think that the role of the appendix was insignificant, didn't we? We'd take it out even if surgeons were in there for no reason, but now they're leaving it in. Why? Because they found it has a function and a role in the body. Okay? It's to, explode, it's to expose white blood cells to a variety of antigens or foreign substances in the, in the GI tract. It has a function. You have a function if you're an appendix. Okay? So take heart. Get in the game. You matter here at Grace. You matter. Your gift matters. So I want to challenge you. And let me just say it this way. I have so much gratitude towards so many of you for setting such a good example in this. So many of you just display a tremendous example. I get to see you working behind the scenes, serving and being equipped for serving in the body. I express so much gratitude, and I hope I do that as I pass you in the hall or as I see you. I want to challenge you, all of you to think and ask the question, not how can this ministry, how can this church work for me, but what can I do to help? What can I do to serve and be a part of this ministry? And often people ask that. I want to help, I don't know where. I don't, I don't know how to help. Well, you're in luck. If you flip your sheet over, Okay, I put a small list of things on there. This is fun for me to think about because none of us know everything that's happening in this body. It's a big body. It's a vast body. There's beautiful things happening in it all the time. But I emailed some people and I said, hey, hey, where needs help in our body? How can people serve in our body? You see the four-year-olds, the kindergarten ministry during the first hour of Sunday school, they need help. That second listening there, there's going to be no four-year-old, the kindergarten Sunday school, May 25th through June 29th. Why? Because there's not enough muscle there. There's not, the, the body has to compromise and, and try and find ways to make up for that. The nursery needs help, both services. Attendance is up, Beth writes, but volunteers are down. That's not surprising, is it? You walk through the hallways and there's 117 babies in our church. Praise God. 
and all of them are going to the nursery and they need help. I bet they need help. Okay? You can provide meals for those in the congregation. I have emails for those uh, who head up these things. And I asked Kelly and she gave me a whole list here. I love number four. Look at number four with me. Salt and pepper, the drawer in the drawers that separate the big kitchen from the gym. They need dumping out, cleaning, and drying, and refilling. You think, that's not a big deal. But it is. It is. That's part of serving and helping in the body. Because what happens if that doesn't get done? our administrative assistant pulls away from her work and, and goes and cleans the salt and the pepper. I just want to give an illustration of ways. Because I know some of you, many of you want to help, but you go, how can I help? What can I do? Well, there's salt and pepper. And you can clean those to the glory and the praise of God. Amen? I love to see the body function. Brooke and I love to watch the Olympics. And it's so neat to use people uh, to, to see people, excuse me, use their body and, and use their body in a way that can glorify God. And when this body functions, and praise God for the way it functions, when it functions in a way that's healthy and not compromised, it's such a beautiful thing. I love to watch it. And so here we have God's plan for equipping, maturing, teaching, loving, and functioning in the church. And we have unity in the diversity of gifts that exist here. So what's the end? right back where we started, to the praise of His glory and our walking in His calling. So none of us, no one here tonight has the right to remain ignorant to your spiritual gifts. You matter. You count in this body. In closing, I want to give an illustration. This is something I keep on my desk just as a reminder for me of Pat Deedy. And I'm reading from the back of... uh, of the uh, handout at our memorial service. I keep this with me just to remind me. Pat Deedy. Pat was a member of Grace Bible Church since 1959. She also taught Sunday school to the two-year-olds for 45 years. Pretty cool, huh? And there's lots of good examples of that in our body. Praise God. If you're not in the game, I pray that you'd get in the game. And may we all grow in our body to glorify God. Let me close with this. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, let this encourage you, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work, your labor for the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. It counts. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it instructs us and teaches us and equips it, equips us. May we all be built up. And Lord, would you get glory for yourself through our body? Thank you for the way you're already doing this. God, thank you for such godly, such good examples in our body. I give you praise for that, Lord. May we be built up and may we grow more and more to praise and honor and glorify you. That is our end and that is our goal. We ask that we do this together in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.